Philippians. If you've got a Bible, please do have it open. Um, This is about our third week, I think, in this series, looking at this letter which Paul wrote to the church in Philippi a little while ago now, 2,000 and something years. But before we get to Paul, let's begin with somebody else, somebody you may have heard of, Simon Sinek. Hands up if you've heard anybody utter that name. Okay, a number of you have. Others uh, have not. Well, Simon Sinek made his name a little while ago, a few years probably ago now, when he gave a, a, a TED Talk. You're familiar with TED Talks? It was actually TED X Talk, I think, in Puget Sound, which I believe is Washington State, but I could be wrong. And his talk was 18 minutes worth, because that's all you get when you do a TED Talk. Better off being a preacher, really. <clears throat> 45 minutes. <laughs> Jokes. <clears throat> and uh, he began his TEDx talk with two questions. And here are the questions. Why do you get out of bed in the morning? And why should anybody care? Answering this question, Simon Sinek suggests, is absolutely key to living an effective life. Now this... Um, this message, this TEDx message was so impactful. I think actually TEDx, Ted put it on their sort of front home screen. It was so impactful and it really caught on. It went viral, as they say. And 30, at this point, as of yesterday, 35.5 million people had listened or watched this talk. Here's his key insight, and I think we have a, an image on the screen. <clears throat> what Cynic says is that most people, in fact, most organizations, but it's also true, I think, of individuals, when they're trying to figure out what they do, they begin, if you look at this circle, they begin on the outside of the circle with what. So most organizations, whether it be uh, people that make computers or uh, people that do healthcare or whatever, most organizations tend to think about what they do. And then, uh, and everybody should know what they do, right? Everybody should have a good idea of what they do. Every organization should have that information. But that's where they begin. And then they make the journey inward. So they might then give some thought to how they do it. But very rarely, Cynic suggests, do they actually think of why they're doing it? Now, he makes an observation then, which is the most effective individuals, and he picks people like Martin Luther King, And the most effective, and of course we could say Jesus as well, but the most effective organisations, and he uses the example of Apple, the most effective organisations and individuals begin the other way around. They start with why. They start in the middle. And once they've figured out their why, then they figure out how they're going to bring about their why. And then their what. They do it in completely the reverse order. In other words, they start with why. They start with... uh, the purpose, the cause, the belief, why they're doing what they're doing. I read another illustration, or read a story rather, in the week in, in the newspaper. It was actually in the Times newspaper. It was covered very widely about, about a guy called Philip Mulrine. Anybody heard that name? <clears throat> no, you'd need to be a Manchester United geek to know that name. Philip Mulrine, and hopefully there aren't too many of those in here. We're Man City fans here, aren't we, all of us? <clears throat> Philip Morine was a, <laughs> a footballer become priest. He was actually a footballer at United. He then moved to Norwich um, uh, after a few years. But having broken into Manchester United's first team squad before forging a successful career at Norwich City and with Northern Ireland, Morine, the midfielder, reached his late 20s, I'm reading directly from the article here, with a dissatisfaction that he could not displace. Quote, I had no sense of fulfillment or contentment, he says. I was empty inside. 
I didn't like the trappings of being a footballer, the money, the nightclubs, and the attention of women, he says. While that was fine for a while, when I got to my late 20s, I started to feel really dissatisfied. I started asking myself, why? Why am I doing this? And basically, the answer was that nothing was ever enough. I was constantly restless, born out of the fact that I thought this way of life was meant to make me happy. I found later on that I was quite empty inside. And that led me to a process of asking some deeper questions about life and what makes me happy? What am I missing? So I think Moraine is an example of somebody that knew his what. He was a footballer. He was a professional footballer. But he didn't know why. And he got everything that he thought he'd ever wanted. He'd got all the trappings of success, but he still didn't know why. Why is he even bothering to do this? And he arrived in his late 20s deeply deeply dissatisfied. He had a major change, of course, in his life. He discovered a new why. He says this, it was a calling. Not that I heard a voice in my head or anything, he says. It came from nowhere, though, which is how I know it was authentic in that it wasn't something coming from me. When he was ordained as a priest, uh, the, the, the chap, I, don't know what the, I suppose the other priest who ordained him, a bishop or something, um, said, said this to him, be an arsonist for Christ, to set the hearts as a friar preacher on fire with the love of Jesus. That was Philip, that is Philip Morine's new why, and a far more compelling one for him. The apostle Paul was somebody who knew his why. Louise has done a bit of research on him this week, but if you don't know about the Apostle Paul, he was the prime persecutor of the early church. He spent all of his energy, all of his effort, trying to destroy this early movement called, well, at that point it wasn't yet called the Christian faith, called the way. This, this, uh, this message uh, embodied in these people this message of the fact that a man or the claim that this man Jesus was crucified on the Roman who was crucified on the Roman cross had been raised to life on the third day and that anybody who wanted to meet with him to follow him could find life in his name this message which ended up turning the world upside down that was the message that Paul initially set out to destroy that was his why and on a road to Damascus as it happens on a journey to go, and, uh, to go and persecute some more Christians, he met the man Jesus in a vision. He f- knocked off his horse and he was blinded by the light, as Springsteen put it. And he ended up uh, going to uh, Damascus where he met a disciple called Ananias who set him on a completely different path. He met with Jesus. His sight was restored And he was given not just his sight, but a completely new why. In fact, he was given a new name to describe the new why. Rather than Saul, this man was now called Paul. His whole life was turned upside down in that moment. I want to suggest this morning that um, becoming somebody uh, who, uh, rather, that finding your why, discovering what it is you're here for, the, the thing that lies at the core of who you are, That's not just about becoming an effective salesperson for a product. There's more at stake than that. It's not just about uh, becoming an effective individual at work, although it might help you in that respect as well. But actually discovering this core thing, this thing that we're born for, that each of us is born for, is about discovering the life that's truly life. 
It's about becoming a person. What's at stake here is the, the possibility, the opportunity, the invitation to become somebody who experiences life, life in all its fullness. And what do I mean? I mean a life where you feel it all, where you experience the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, the joy of the Lord which is your strength, the hope which is rooted in a, something deeper than just your own performance that comes from what God has done in Jesus. There's more at stake than just effectiveness. There's life in all its abundance. The question is, what is to be our why? Because not all whys are equal. Not all whys are created equal. We need, as people who are following Jesus, who are, are interested in following Jesus, or just showed up because we're with somebody here who is interested, we need to discover uh, a new basis for existence, a new why. Where can it be found? Well, we continue in this letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi in chapter one, as Louise read. I want to start in verse 12. You read with me. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Keep it up there on the screen. I want you to know. Okay, Paul's begun with an introduction, a thanksgiving, that's, and a prayer for the Philippines. That's sort of standard first century letter fare. He's taken a bit longer than normal to do the whole thanksgiving and prayer, but he really loves these guys. But now he gets into the body of the letter and he begins with this phrase, I want you to know. In other words, what's about to come, church in Philippi, is what I'm really writing about. You need to hear this. And in fact, what he's about to say is, in fact, is the occasion for the letter. See, the church in Philippi had heard that Paul had been imprisoned. And they, have, you know, being his friends and those that loved him, sent some help with a guy called Epaphroditus. The help contained uh, some money and probably some other stuff as well. And Epaphroditus, although he almost died on the way, eventually got to Paul and gave this letter. And they, they were concerned for him. And so Paul says, look, I want you to know that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the cause of the gospel. It's actually served to advance the gospel. That's what Paul says. <clears throat> what Paul wants them to know is that there's a bigger, there's a bigger story. There's something bigger at stake here than just what has happened to him. But what has happened to him? What's happened to him is that he is struggling. What's happened to Paul is that he is suffering in a big way. What's happened to Paul is that he's been imprisoned. He's probably under house arrest. As Will said last week, he's either in Ephesus, Caesarea or Rome. You take your pick. There's evidence for all three. We're not sure. Will goes with Ephesus. I'll probably take Rome, but there we go. Split the difference. <laughs> he's in prison. That's the point. He's under house arrest. He doesn't have his freedom. And in the midst of this difficult situation, it's not just that he's in prison, but actually he's begun to be abandoned by his closest friends. Different ones have gone off and done things in different places. Now, Paul can't work. He's under house arrest, but he's still responsible for buying his own food, doing his own shopping, all that other stuff, paying for his own lecky, electricity, all that stuff. Paul's got to do it. And so how is he going to get resource? He needs help. He feels isolated, imprisoned, literally, but also more than that, he feels lonely. We're certain he must feel lonely. He's been abandoned by those who are closest to him. And in addition, he's experiencing opposition. <clears throat> we read uh, here in verse 15. If I can find verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. 
The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm inside. To paraphrase, Paul's in prison. And the opposition he's experiencing is that people are going to preach the gospel in order to make it more difficult for him. So he's having a rough time. There's probably not a single person here, whatever difficulty we're going through right now, and as Louise said, our our prison might not be, uh, well, it is not a, a physical one at this point, but we are experiencing opposition. I'm sure every one of us has our own story this morning of, of difficulty, of trial, of, of struggle in some way. It might be your job isn't working out as you'd anticipated. It might be your health has been a challenge. It might be you're facing uh, something new. It might be that you're facing the challenge of... Uh, of a new relationship. It might be you're facing the challenge of a relationship having ended. It might, be, um, <clears throat> it might be that you're caught between things. It might be that you're struggling to find work. It could be any number of things that you're struggling with. It might be that you're facing, for the first time, your own mortality. And that's difficult. It might be that something's happening with your children uh, that's hard. Maybe at school. Or it might be that you, you've, you don't have children and you, and you wish you did. It, there's something that we're all facing this morning. Some kind of opposition, some kind of difficulty. What makes Paul special? What makes Paul, rather, maybe a better way to say it, what makes Paul stand out is not that he's facing opposition. That unites every human being in all time, in all places. We all struggle. And certainly uh, being part of a church, following Jesus is no inoculation against that. We didn't do this, we didn't sign up to this for an easy life. But what makes Paul special is not that, but what makes him stand out, I think, is his response to it. Because what the tone of this letter, and particularly the tone of this chapter, is joy. What do we read? Verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through the prayer, your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Rejoicing, joy. The dominant tone of this letter, the dominant, I think you've got to hear this. The dominant tone of this chapter is joy. A man in prison rejoicing it's extraordinary isn't it abandoned by your friends and yet still rejoicing not having the most basic freedoms and yet still rejoicing I rejoiced I will continue to rejoice now we've got to get this straight it doesn't mean Paul's rejoicing does not mean that he's having an easy time of it in fact we read and I think I've got this on the second slide <clears throat> We read actually elsewhere, Paul talk about one of his stints in prison. And he says this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. Paul could be in Asia. If he's in Ephesus, he's in Asia. And they might be referring to this exact imprisonment. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. 
So what Paul isn't saying is, oh, this is a, this is a theme park at this prison. I've got all the mod cons, it's fantastic. Oh, you, just see, you should see my reclining sofa. And, you know, the central heating installed and, you know, I've got Netflix. Put my feet up and these, these Praetorian guards, gosh, they are, they're good ones. Tell you what, they're, they're really generous and hospitable. And every so often I pop in to see the emperor, you know, Caesar. And we have a chat and it's great. And, you know, that's not the storyline. Paul is despairing at different points and yet still rejoicing. Joy is not about having an easy life. Joy is not about evading or avoiding or denying reality. So much damage has been done when people misinterpret that. And people think that, oh gosh, I'm a Christian. I'm following Jesus. I better be joyful. I'm struggling. I'm having a shocking time. We come to church and somebody's like, how are you doing? Great. How are you? You know, the voice goes up seven registers and we're like, I'm just faking it. That's not... Christianity, it's not following Jesus. What we want to be is real, authentic, honest, vulnerable, transparent. Because joy doesn't have to do with faking it. Joy has to do with engaging with the deepest realities, but engaging in them with God and with one another. How is Paul able to hold on to this joy in the midst of his suffering? Just a few things I want to pick out from the text. Firstly, I want to begin actually in the first chapter, verse verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The first reason Paul rejoices is because he's committed himself to a project with his friends. His, his life is all about, essentially, it's all about changing the world with his friends. And so he now looks back in this letter, with this letter to the church in Philippi, who he loves, his brothers and sisters, and he says this, look, I rejoice because I'm partnered with you in this bigger picture, this bigger story. We together have done some great stuff, haven't we? We've seen God do amazing things, and here we are, 10, 13 years later, this is 13 years after he initially planted that church, we're still going. Wow, and that, that makes me rejoice. So in other words, Paul rejoices because he's part of something bigger than himself. He's changing the world with his friends. That partnership keeps him going. Amy and I got a text message just last week from a friend of ours in California. And uh, some of you know that we worked there for a few years. And while we were there, we started Alpha in this church. And we got this text message from our friend who's still involved in that ministry. This is probably nine years ago we started this ministry. And it's, it was the first week we ever did Alpha. Oh, it was shocking. We did it in a place called the Shark Club. And it's called the Shark Club, folks. It's a nightclub. Sticky floors. We walked in. Sticky floor. Alpha, by the way, is all about hospitality. Sticky floors, beer everywhere, stank a bit. It's called the Shark Club because there's a shark in the club. This small shark just want, you know, just wafting around in the water. And we're trying to, you know, begin, and, and it was there was soggy pizza. It was miserable. The only people that showed up were people that were there to volunteer. It was such, it was, it was, it was a hard start. By the time that we left, three and a half years later, it was amazing what had happened. We had probably about 100, 120 people coming. 
uh, every time. And it just felt like, but more than that, there was this community at the heart of it. Our people, it was beautiful. And, and it felt so encouraging just seeing them. And we'd, see, we'd done it together. We got a text message, so seven years on or six years on since we left. A text message this week from a friend just saying, look, I just want to tell you what's happening with Alpha. You know, we've taken, uh, there's a weekend away at the heart of it. It tends to be typically more difficult to get people to go on the weekend away. So we're getting 300 people coming away every time we do this. We've got hundreds of people coming to Alpha. Um, we're seeing story after story. The whole team now, the whole team is made up of people whose lives have been changed. And you guys started this. Now, did we do it all? Heck no. We played a tiny, tiny part. But we can say, I was part, I, I was part of that. I partnered in that with you. And that leads to rejoicing. It gives Paul joy. Partnership in the gospel. But secondly, we see the prayers of the saints. Verse 18, 19. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. The prayers of the saints. What gives us joy is one another's prayers. You know, one of the greatest gifts we have here is other people who pray for us. You know, Paul refers to the church in Philippi. He says, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. I want to tell you that your prayers for us, for Amy and I, your prayers for us make the world of difference. We pray for you regularly. Those of you particularly who we know are struggling, but all of you. But your prayers for one another are what's going to make the difference in your lives. You know, prayer isn't just wishful thinking. You know, every time something happens in the world and everyone gets on Twitter and says, pray for dot, dot, dot. There's some value in that. But I sometimes wonder, do you really understand what prayer is? Do you just mean think about or do you mean pray for? Because folks, prayer is warfare. Prayer is getting down into the trenches and throwing some grenades over the top. Prayer is getting your hands and your, 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 everything dirty because you're climbing in there with somebody you love and you say, I'm not, it's not going to stay this way. Prayer is a battle. And we get to do that for one another. And Paul is saying, I'm encouraged, I'm joyful because I know you guys are fighting on my behalf. He's encouraged, he's joyful because of those prayers. Those prayers have sustained him. Pray for one another. Thirdly, the provision of the Spirit. What their prayers release for him is the Holy Spirit's presence in his life. Here he is, seemingly alone in his prison, in this, in this house arrest, and yet he knows he's not alone. That's the key. The key to joy for Paul is knowing he's never alone. Even though his friends abandon him, here he is in the Holy Spirit standing with him. The one who comes alongside to be with us, to not just to give us a nice warm fuzzy feeling once a week when we're singing songs at church, but the one who intercedes for us. The one who prays those prayers on our behalf. The one who comes alongside us to show us Jesus. The one who climbs into the most shameful moments we experience week in, week out and shows us that Jesus was there with us. The one through whom we experience the love of God poured into our hearts. The one who testifies with our spirits that we're children of God. We're not orphans. We're not aliens. We're children. The one who convinces us that we're loved and that we belong to God. That Holy Spirit is the provision of that Holy Spirit for Paul. 
that gives him joy. Church, you can't do this without the provision of the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is impossible. It was never meant to be attempted without the provision of the Holy Spirit. If it's done without the provision of the Holy Spirit, it's just hard work. And you will, if you're trying it that way, you will give up within weeks if you're that good. To become like Jesus Christ, which is what each of us is going for here, in a U-shaped way, to become like Jesus Christ, which is to become the most human, the most beautiful image of uh, perfect humanity possible. To become like him requires his spirit living in you. And you have been promised his spirit living in you. And his spirit in living in you will give you joy. But there's a, f- a fourth reason that lies beneath all of these reasons. And that reason is that Paul has discovered his why. What is his why? <clears throat> the preaching about Jesus Christ. The gospel, or put it more simply, his why is Jesus. What do we read? As a result, it's... Um, It's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy or rivalry. He goes on again and again in this text to talk about preaching Christ, to talk about Christ. In fact, 39 times in this letter, the name Jesus Christ is used. 19 times in this first chapter alone. In addition, the word gospel, which means simply good news, the good news about Jesus Christ is used in Philippians nine times, six of those nine times in this chapter alone. Paul is obsessed. He is obsessed with Jesus. He's obsessed with the gospel. He's obsessed, about, he's obsessed with this uh, mandate of propagating the gospel, of spreading this news, of sharing this news. And the reason he's able to rejoice in prison is because even though he's in chains, the gospel is being released. It's being freed. All over the world, through the Praetorian Guard, the, the Emperor's Guards, all over the place. And so he's like, I don't care if I'm in prison, as long as the gospel's being freed, as long as the news about Jesus is getting out there. Because Jesus Christ beneath all of it is Paul's why. Jesus is the reason. Paul does what he does. Jesus is the reason that Paul is joyful. And I know we know that's the answer, isn't it? It's always the answer. If any of you have done Sunday school, you know that Jesus is always the answer. But this isn't some academic thing for him. He's not sitting in there putting a, uh, a church test together, saying, you know, what questions, what questions could I ask? And, and how might they be answered? Well, I mean, I must do a couple in there that have the answer Jesus. This isn't academic for Paul. His actual life is on the line. He's facing the reality of death. He thinks his death is possible at least. And in the midst of this, he throws out a phrase which, I'll be honest, this week has just lived with me, almost haunted me. And here's the phrase. I need to pick my Bible up, my sight is going. Well, I'll start from verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I'll no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
To live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. It's like, he sounds like somebody about to pick a Christmas present. What shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain. And I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. For him to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I would rather die, Paul is saying. Why? Because I just want Jesus. I want Christ Jesus. I want whatever it is that's going to get me close to Jesus. The one who I met on the, on the road to Damascus, I want him. I want to know him more fully. And to know him fully, even as I've been fully known, as he says elsewhere. I want to see him face to face. Not through a, a mirror dimly, as he says in 1 Corinthians 13, but, but face to face. I don't want to be sitting here in this prison cell experiencing him but not being next to him I want to be next to him wherever he is to die is gain to live is Christ what a challenging thing for us today can we say that same thing can we say to live is Christ it's so difficult for us it's so, it must have been so difficult for Paul he was being on his own journey with this as well it must have been so difficult for the Philippians. They must have read this and thought, wow. We spend so much time preserving what we have on earth. Preserving our money, our bank balance. Preserving our health. Preserving our relationships. All of which are good things, gifts from God. But yet allowing those things at times to overcome the giver. To become bigger than the giver. And so we lose focus on what we're here for. We lose focus on our why. For, for Paul, the gospel, the good news about Jesus was bigger than anything. It was bigger even than his own life. Jesus was bigger for him because Jesus was better. He tasted and seen what Jesus was like. And so he was able to say, look, I'd trade everything else for him. Church. So what? Here's my question to you this morning. What is your why? What's your answer to this question or to this statement? To live is dot, dot, dot. How do you complete that statement? How do you complete that sentence? To live is dot, dot, dot. Each of us with our lives is demonstrating an answer to that. We demonstrate that with how we spend our money. We demonstrate that with how we spend our time. We demonstrate that with who we spend time with and all those other things. Maybe for you, you recognize there's a wrestle here and for you it's temptation is your life to become about work, to live is work. Or maybe, uh, maybe to live is to experience pleasure. To live is to be healthy. To, be lit, to live is to uh, be with your family. To live is to be seen by others as a, as a success. To live is to avoid whatever it takes being alone. To live is to be in control. What is life for you? How have you finished that sentence? That is your why. Gordon Fee 
writes a commentary on this. I mean, this is our final slide. It says this. One wonders what the people of God might truly be like in our postmodern world if we were once again people of this singular, singular passion. Too often it is for us. Sorry, too often for us it is for me to live as Christ plus work, leisure, accumulating wealth, relationships, etc. And if the truth were known, all too often the plus factor has become our primary passion. For me to live is work, etc. Both our progress and joy regarding the gospel are altogether contingent on whether or not Christ is our primary singular passion. As we read on in Philippians, what we find is that Jesus is not just the why for Paul, but Paul presents a picture of Jesus as the why for all creation. Philippians 2 verse 9. We're going to spend some time looking at this in weeks to come. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the why of the universe. Is he your why? I confess I've wrestled with this this week. And I don't know where it hits you. You might find this easy. You might be like, yep. And not, not, not in any sort of self-righteous way, but like, you know what? This has been my journey. I've met him and I'm going for it right now. Awesome. Show us what it's like. Challenge us. Point us towards him. We need you. Pray for us. Pray for the provision of the Holy Spirit for us. Pray that we might encounter him in our daily lives. Spur us on. Be that example in this place. You might be like me. You might be wrestling. In the middle of your busy life, in the middle of all the things that go on in your world, wrestling to keep him front and centre, desperate to do so, but struggling with how. That's probably where I'm at right now. Can we spur each other on? Can we be a place where it's, it's not just okay, it's actually the aim that we become those sorts of people? Not in a happy, clappy way, in an earthy, real, authentic way. That we will go for it, go for it with him until the day we drop and when we see him face to face. Or maybe this is not where you're at yet. Maybe it's the first time you thought in this way at all. I want to encourage you, give it some thought and pray a dangerous prayer. If you're out there, show me. If you are who you say you are, reveal yourself to me. Let's stand.